As the uh, individuals are distributing tonight's handout, uh, Daryl asked me to uh, inform you that they are still in need of individuals to sign up uh, to bring food for the family fun night. Uh, so if you're able to do that, they'd appreciate uh, getting those uh, sign-up sheets uh, filled. And uh, they are back in the narthex, and you can check them out. I just completed a series on uh, the Lord's Prayer. Tonight, we start a, another series, if you will, although each one of these messages are probably going to be disjunct. Uh, this is uh, rambling musings on my part. Uh, they, as I read through the Bible, I get some strange thoughts. And uh, don't really fit into a series. It's kind of just an isolated thought. And uh, so these are going to be isolated thoughts, just random things that come to my mind as I read the scripture. So you'll get to see how my mind works or doesn't work, depending on the point of view. But uh, just some observations, things to, to think about that I hope are relevant, although this isn't going to seem too relevant in the beginning, but give me time. Okay, at the end, uh, we'll, we'll bring about its relevance. We're going to talk about a lesson in how God works. Introduction. There are exegetical fallacies that we must avoid. There are some common mistakes that people make in seeking to apply the scriptures. Tonight, I'm going to look at just one. And that is, we need to exercise extreme caution when applying descriptive portions of scripture. Descriptive portions of scripture do not have the same force as prescriptive portions of scripture. The prescriptive portions of scripture would be the commands, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The descriptive portions of scripture are just the narrations, the stories that are <coughs> recorded in the Bible of what people do, what they've said, how they've acted. Um, in other words, the, the narratives that describe what God's people have done at any particular moment in time are not necessarily normative of what we are to do. The actions and decisions of biblical characters do not become commands for us. They may not even be an example for us in a good sense. They actually may be a bad example. Or what they do may be, be neutral. All right? For example, um, Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife. Remember that story? Well, we shouldn't go away thinking it's okay to lie about uh, whether we're married or not based on the fact that Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife. Now, that's pretty extreme. But the point is that the patriarchs did things that were sinful. <laughs> they did things that were not wise. And we aren't to follow their example in doing sinful things or, or unwise things. So we have to be very careful as we look at narratives and put them against other portions of Scripture. What does the Bible say about this particular thing? Is it good that what they did, or is it bad what they did, or is it neutral? <clears throat> so the actions and decisions of biblical characters not become commands for us. God works in a variety of ways in diverse circumstances. The prescriptive portions of Scripture are those portions that contain specific commands. One of the things that got me motivated on this is I've been reading a number of books that are talking about methodology 
And uh, they tend to proof text. They, they tend to look at a particular example in the scripture and say, okay, and because it was done this way, this is how we should do it. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of four other examples in the Bible where it's done a different way. <laughs> Why choose that one <laughs> and not choose one of the other three? Why not interact with the other three? And uh, so um, that's the advantage of really knowing the entirety of the word of God to be able to put these things in perspective. So tonight... We will learn some important lessons from examining the building of the temple narrative compared with the building of the tabernacle narrative. Uh, we're going to look at some significant differences in how God worked in the building of the tabernacle with the way in which he worked in the building of the temple. What I want to show you is there is not a consistent paradigm. There's not just one way in which God works or this is the right way, this is the biblical way but rather that we see that the way in which he worked in building the temple, as I say, is, is quite different from the way in which he worked in uh, building the tabernacle. Solomon begins his reign over Israel by sacrificing on the brazen altar built by Bezalel. I've got a lot of scripture here, so uh, it gives us the background, and I'm going to skip over portions of the scripture. I trust you know the story pretty well. And uh, I want to highlight just some things that are, that are relevant for our consideration. In 2 Chronicles 1, it says, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands, of hundreds, to the judges, and to all leaders in Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon, all assembly with him, went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirith Jarm to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched the tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. Uh, one of the things that got me started, I always ask the question when I'm reading through the scriptures, why does it give us the details that it does? What is the significance? So I asked myself, why is it telling us that Bezel made this um, bronze altar? I mean, we all ought to know that. I mean, that, that's common knowledge. That's, if you read about how the, the tabernacle was built and, and so on, we, we know that Bezalel built this, this altar. So why, of all things, does it highlight that at this point? I just kind of noted that in my mind and went on. Well, as we work through the text, Solomon seeks to build a temple to the Lord. Second Chronicles 2.1, Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. Solomon then informs Hiram of Solomon's intention to build a temple to the honor and glory of God. And Solomon went to Hiram, the king of Tyre. As you dealt with David, my father, send him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. I'm just building a construct of the narrative, just getting a sense of what it tells us. Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning incense, the sweet spices before him, and for the regular agreement arrangement of the showbread, and for burnt offerings, morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, and on the new moons, 
and the appointed feast of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I'm to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. I'm just pointing out that here is Solomon uh, telling of another king, a foreign king, of his intention to build, and he uses this as an opportunity to not only speak of what he is doing, but to give glory to God. He says, I'm going to build this house. It's going to be great for our God is greater than all gods. So now he's taking on Hiram, if you will, and saying that the God that he worshiped is inferior to uh, the living and true God. Solomon seeks Hiram's help. Solomon is in need of a skillful overseer. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? So now send me a skilled, send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, purple, crimson, blue fabrics, trained also in engraving, to be with the skilled workers who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David, my father, provided. Okay, so he wants Hiram to send him an overseer. Somebody that can work with Solomon's men to build this temple. Okay, he's looking for a, a project foreman, if you will. Solomon communicates to Hiram God's goodness to David, Solomon, and the people of Israel. And Solomon sent word to Hiram. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put under the soles of his feet. This is a parallel passage. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I tend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father. reason I'm throwing that in there is to say that God had given rest to the kingdom, that on every side there was, nobody was at war, <laughs> things were peaceful, it was the prime time to be building this temple. Solomon is in need of a skilled workforce in order to complete the work. Now therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants. And I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Okay, So he's recognizing their limited knowledge in what they are about to do. Okay, Nobody can work with wood like your guys can, so we need your help. Solomon is also in need of materials to complete the work. Send me also cedar, cypress, algum, timber from Lebanon, for I know your servants know how to cut timber in Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance, for the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. I will give for your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Hiram's response. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram gives praise to God. 
Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now, we don't know the heart of Hiram. Uh, we don't know the sincerity of the way in which he responds to Solomon. Is he just being nice and uh, just saying, well, you know, uh, it's wonderful that you're building this house to, to God, or does he really place his faith and trust in God? That's it's hard to say. But what we do know is that Hiram is aware of the claim that the God that Solomon worships is the one who made heaven and earth. Okay, He at least knows that and declares that. My point to you is that through this interaction, uh, Hiram is learning a lot about God and coming to some significant conclusions about God, about his faithfulness, about God's wisdom, about God's goodness in raising up uh, Solomon and being faithful to David. As he simply works alongside of Solomon, he's being introduced to a lot of important theology as to who the true and living God is. That's my point. <clears throat> so Hiram supplies Solomon with a skilled overseer. Now I have sent a skilled man who has understanding, Humarabi, the son of woman, the sons of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. Moving on. In contrast, with the building of the temple, all the work of the tabernacle was done in-house with a skilled overseer from within Israel. Okay? There is no outward help or influence in building the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oliab, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. I'll tell you why that's bold in, in just a minute. And I've given to all men ability that they may make all that I commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent. The table, its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and the stand. All these things they had to make. And he says in verse 11, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. There's the background. Here comes the observations. First, observations and lessons regarding the different ways that God works in the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. First, the circumstances of building the tabernacle were different from the circumstances in building the temple. In the time of building the, the tabernacle, the Israelites were in a desert place isolated from the nations round about them. Okay, there was nobody on their immediate border, if you will. In the time of the building of the temple, 
The Israelites were in the promised land, surrounded by nations which God had caused to be at peace with Israel. The material resources that were needed in the building of the temple and the building of the tabernacle differed. Huge stones were required in the building of the temple that were not used in the building of the tabernacle. There was much more wood used in the building of the temple in comparison to the building of the tabernacle. I think if you just think through those building projects, you can see that the resources were drastically, drastically different. The human resources that were available to Israel were different in the time of building the tabernacle than they were in the time that the temple was built. In the building of the tabernacle, God endowed Israelites with the ability necessary to do all the work. In the building of the temple, there was a lack within Israel of the skilled labor that was required to do the work of the temple. Why? Could not God have raised up people, as he did in building the tabernacle, that uh, he could have raised up someone that, that could have overseen that project and wouldn't have to go to a foreign king to ask for an overseer? He could, but he didn't. There were many more laborers required in the building of the temple than the building of the tabernacle. In fact, he has to outsource a great much of the, the building of the, the temple. He uses uh, foreign people. He hires them, pays them wages, uh, goes through the whole process to have enough people to do the work. Building the tabernacle, no problem. Done in-house, plenty of workers. Wasn't near the project, wasn't near the size, wasn't near as difficult. They got it done. The way in which God brought glory to his name differed in the building of the tabernacle from the building of the temple. In the building of the tabernacle, God glorified himself through the military overthrow of the nations round about Israel. In the building of the temple, God glorified himself through the peace that he established with the nations round about him. That's rather significant. The relationship that existed with the foreign entities in the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple were really direct opposites. Okay? They uh, were at war with all the nations round about them. Here they are at peace with all the nations round about them, just showing the different circumstances. The way that God worked in building the tabernacle and the, and the building of the temple was different. In the building of the tabernacle, God supernaturally raised up gifted workers. In Exodus 31, 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. That is the introductory statement as to how he has this ability. Okay, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, and knowledge, and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him with Oliab, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. This is rather striking when you think of the children of Israel uh, when they uh, were in the land of Egypt, when uh, they were building, now we know that they, they built stuff, okay? We, we know the story of Moses and, and how they were uh, laborers 
uh, how they uh, worked with bricks and how they made bricks and how eventually the straw was taken away from them and they still had to make the same amount. But, but they were laborers. They were not artisans. And they didn't do any of this kind of work, okay, of molds, of casting, of working with, with metals. How could they do what they did when they built the tabernacle? Especially thinking of them in the, in the wilderness, How could they accomplish this feat? Well, the answer is God, by his spirit, gave them the ability. Okay, you you think of the inventor. Okay, how does the person come up with the idea of how to do this? Well, uh, they are people of just incredible insight. God wonderfully, miraculously provided Israel with the leaders that they needed to know how to do this stuff. Okay? That's how it got it done. God gave them the knowledge, the insight, the understanding, and they were able to do it. Okay. In the building of the temple, God raised up gifted workers through natural means. Who Ramba, uh, Bobby, Bobby was experienced and he was trained. In 2 Chronicles 2.13, it says, Now I have a a skilled man who has understanding, that is Huram Ababi, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. So here is a descendant of Oliab. Here is a future generation. And I submit to you that these artisans from the tribe of Dan passed on their artisanry to succeeding generations. Unless you think I've gone too far, look at the next statement. The son of a woman, the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. He is trained to work in gold, silver, etc. Notice that word. He is trained. Which means that he went through an apprenticeship. Somebody mentored him. Someone schooled him, someone taught him, someone instructed him, someone prepared him to do this kind of work. You will look in vain when it's the building of the tabernacle to find anybody who's trained, anybody who's instructed, anybody who's taught. They're just given the ability. But when it comes to the temple, now they're finding people that have these skills and have been trained in them. Hammurabi was providentially prepared for this work. Now I have a quote from uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. I found this to be helpful. And so I quote, Haram Ababi's mother was by tribal descent literally a woman from the daughters of Dan, coming from Chronicles, but by immediate situation, a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, according to 1 Kings 7.14. Yet the fact that his father came from Tyre gave Haram Abi a combined Phoenician-Hebrew endowment, which enabled him to deal both linguistically and culturally with the two nationalities of workmen who would be responsible to him. In other words, he probably spoke Hebrew, 
and he spoke Phoenician. And he had to oversee Hebrew-speaking workmen, and he had to oversee Phoenician-speaking workmen who were from Tyre. And in the goodness and providence and the sovereignty of God, here was a guy that was equipped, that was ready to go, and could oversee both entities with no problem. This superintendent's diversified skills included the capacity to handle precious metals, wood, stone, and fabrics. First Kings 7.14 mentions only his skill with bronze. He thus presents a parallel to the wide-ranging abilities of Bezalel, the master builder of the Mosaic Tabernacle. In other words, he's doing the same stuff that Bezalel did. Solomon's role in building the temple was different than Moses' role in building the temple. In the building of the tabernacle, the plans came directly from God to Moses. Exodus 26.30, God says to Moses, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it which you were shown on the mountain. God took Moses up on a mountain and gave him a vision. And in that vision, he showed him the tabernacle. He got to see the finished product. It was revealed in a vision, miraculously, to Moses. This, Moses, is what you are to build. In the building of the temple, the plans came from God, mediated through David, to Solomon. First Chronicles 28, verses 11 and following. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house, the treasuries of the dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests, the Levites, all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, all the vessels for the service of the house of the Lord, the weight of gold, all of that is given to Solomon by David. Solomon doesn't come up with any of that. Nor does God reveal that to Solomon. All the plans for the temple are coming from David. And David gets them from God. But for the temple they're mediated, in the tabernacle, it's directly from God. So, just, I had to draw the line somewhere. Okay, My mind started racing. I started coming up with other examples. But I, I throw out enough there that you can see there are differences in the way in which God worked in the building of the tabernacle and the way in which he worked in building the temple. So now let's get to the application. What relevance, if any, is there to all of this? Well, first, different circumstances resulted in different measures. God was not limited to one way in accomplishing his purposes. That's important to know. Uh, I should have put the verse in here, I didn't, but of David's mighty men, it's one of my favorite verses, and that is that, that God gave to Israel uh, men that understood the times and knew what Israel was to do. That's important, to understand the times and know what Israel's to do. The degree of God's working was the same in the building of the tabernacle as it was in the building of the temple. There was no difference. Okay, that's my first presupposition. God was at work in building the tabernacle, and God was at work in building the temple. One was not a human effort, and one a God effort. God was at work in both, even though 
the working was quite different. God was no more at work in the building of the tabernacle than he was in the building of the temple, even though we have God's direct involvement in giving these plans to Moses and raising up Bezalel and Oaliah. But he was no more at work in that than he was in building the temple. Said conversely, God was no less at work in the building of the temple than he was in the building of the tabernacle. Why is that important to realize? Thirdly, God was to be equally praised in the completion of the tabernacle and in the completion of the temple. God is no less to be praised. God is no less to be exalted in the building of the temple than he was in the building of the tabernacle. Both were accomplished by God's enablement and provision. Both the tabernacle and the temple were filled with the presence of God. Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 2 Chronicles 5, 14. Then the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. You see, both brought glory to God. Both revealed the glory of God. Both experienced the same relationship to God, being filled with his presence, even though the process was quite different. What's the relevance of this study? Well, we should realize that God does not always work in the same way to achieve similar purposes. We must understand our circumstances and our needs to make wise decisions in going about accomplishing God's work. Different times and different circumstances might result in different answers to the same question. So I, I picked one of the things that sometimes Christians like to argue about, and one of them has to do with missionary service. Should missionaries hire unsaved nationals to do some or all of their building needs, or should they rely totally upon God's people to do the work? I've read books that try to make one of those the biblical answer. That, that try to say, this is the God-honoring thing to do. I'm not so sure. Okay? But rather, there are questions. Is there a qualified national workforce? If there's not a qualified national workforce, obviously you're going to need some people from the United States to come over and to help, or people from another nation. Okay? What will be the most cost-effective? What's going to be the, the cheaper of those two approaches? Depends on where it is, depends on the circumstances. Will it help the economy of the nationals put them to paid use? Will God's name be glorified as the missionaries share the purpose and worth of their building project to the nationals? Is this a means of, of sharing the gospel, even as Hiram learned about God through this building project? Is this a way to help nationals understand who God is and, and their relationship to him? Which will be the most strategic in the spread of the gospel? Different answers can be given to these questions depending upon place, time, circumstances, and available resources. It's not all that simple. It really depends. It depends. Should the church ever outsource its work and pay for the work to be done, or should the church only rely upon volunteer labor within it? Let's bring it home. Okay? What about us? Should we be sure that Everything that we do in the life of the church is done by volunteer labor, 
or is there time to go outside and uh, pay for someone else to do it? Is one approach more biblical than the other? Is God more at work in one instance or another? See, that to me is the bigger issue. It's quick and it's easy to say, well, this is what glorifies God. Well, what, how does this glorify God? Let me put it another way. Is God more worthy of praise when he raises up skilled laborers to do the work than when God provides the motivation, dedication, and resources for God's people to pay for the work to be done? Is one more God-honoring? Does one show a greater commitment? Or can we see commitment in both of those approaches? How you read the scriptures has a profound impact on how you view life's decisions. You see, and what I'm saying to you is it's easy to jump to some of those conclusions without going through the work of really looking at the presuppositions that underline the, underlie those, those decisions, those, those conclusions. Um, it's, it's really easy to look at the Bible, find something that supports the methodology that you want to take, and say, see, it's biblical. And here's the example in the Bible, how was it done this way? All I'm saying to you is you probably can go somewhere else and say, well, here's another example how it's done. It's done quite differently. Okay? Different places, different times. Sometimes churches don't have money. Some churches, sometimes churches do have money. Sometimes churches have the skilled labor. Sometimes the churches don't have the skilled labor. Sometimes it's a project that's huge. Sometimes it's a project that's small. All of those things are, are different. So, may we be careful to give God praise for all that he is doing, no matter how that he does it. That's my bottom line, and that's my greatest concern. Don't fail to see God at work even when he doesn't do it the way that he did it in the past. Don't fail to see God at work in the building of the temple simply because it's not exactly like how he built the tabernacle. But God is still at work. God is still to be glorified. God is still to be thanked. God is still to be praised. All right? So whether we do it ourselves or pay it to be done, God is still to be praised. He still provides. He's still the one that enables. He's still the one that's created the need. So that God is to be praised and glorified in all things. And then lastly, we must be very careful when it comes to proof texting methodology. When it comes to saying this is the way that it has to be done and then finding a verse of scripture to back it up. Now there are things that the Bible teaches like preaching the gospel. There, there are some methodologies for uh, accomplishing his spiritual work. But when it comes to like the order of the church, when it comes to even things you can you can you know read Ron Sider's book and you know he's going to tell you that the whole New Testament church had everything in common etc cetera, etc cetera. that was true at Jerusalem it wasn't true in the other churches okay it, it it's a misrepresentation it it's not true across the board does that mean we should follow the Jerusalem model maybe should we follow the model in 
Thessalonians that says if, uh, if you don't work, you can't eat. It depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. And we shouldn't lose out on the site that eventually people are taking up collections for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Why? Because they sold everything and nobody had anything left. And after they divvied it up, then they were poor. And then they needed people from the outside to contribute. Okay? So you got to take in the big picture. You got to look at all of what the scripture says. And that takes some work. That takes some forethought. That takes some discipline. Uh, That says, let's just settle down and just look at what the, the scripture says and and probably what we're going to see is there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. But however it's done, it ought to result in glorifying God and acknowledging here is God at work. Don't fail to see God at work just because in a different period, a different time, he works in a different way. That's it. That's the rambling for tonight. New subject next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your work. It differs at times and ages, but yet, Lord, you are at work, and you are at work in our church. You're at work in the lives of your people. You are accomplishing your purposes and your ends. We thank you and praise you for it, and uh, Lord, we just ask for wisdom constantly. Uh, we need wisdom in the decisions that we make in the life of our church. Uh, Lord, help us to understand our times. Help us to understand the issues. Help us to look to you for your provision and to praise you for all that you've done. May we be careful uh, to uh, not murmur or complain, but rather, uh, Lord, to look around and actually see uh, your uh, spirit at work. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.